Good morning. Uh, so if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and uh, one will magically appear to you. Romans chapter 1. And I want to read this text again. I know Brother Mark just read this, um, but <clears throat> I think it's good to hear the text a couple times before we, before we jump in. So, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we are not we are not gathered here. I pray we are not gathered here simply out of a rote uh, habit that now the pastor stands up and reads a text and we open our Bibles and he talks and then we're done. Dear God, I pray you'd rescue us if that be the case this morning for anybody. The living, powerful Word of God accompanied by the Spirit of God is present. Father, we have brothers and sisters who have been destroyed physically in their pursuit of putting this book in our hands this morning. So much blood spilt in the service of having the Word of God in our language. So, dear Father, I pray, let us be oh so careful not to fall into a groove and just follow that groove of what we do on a Sunday morning. But Lord, refresh us, remind us of the reality of what we're about to do. And may your word profoundly go forth. Father, I plead with you, apart from your spirit, I have nothing here. If this is based on Dan Mason opening up a text and speaking, nothing's going to happen, God. I am dependent on you. So speak to the hearts of your people. Minister your word to them. Encourage the saints. Father, call the lost. And may your blessing be on the preaching of your word. Dear God, let the preacher fade and let Jesus Christ become more and more clear and glorious to PCBC today. We praise you and thank you, Father. Genuinely, I praise you. I thank you that you'd let me stand here and do this this morning. I ask for uh, these things in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> you take any kind of homiletics course or uh, oratory course or something of that nature, one primary thing they're going to teach you in there is you must have the big idea of the text. Now, different teachers are going to say different things. Sometimes they'll say the, the main idea or uh, the big picture is what, I, is what I heard, or the big idea, 
the main idea is the central theme of what you're about to speak about. And I believe, I'm convinced that Romans chapter 1, verse 17 in particular, but I would probably say 16 and 17, is the central theme of this book. So you want a guidepost for the next 10 years through this study. Romans 1, 16 and 17 is your guidepost. I believe this book just falls in line with the truths of 16 and 17. And, and let me go just a little tighter on the guidepost. The phrase, the righteousness of God, is the central piece to this book. Everything else that I believe the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is going to be saying, falls in line in connection to the righteousness of God. <clears throat> and so, and this is not just something Dan came up with, just about every commentator that I pursue uh, in this book, have been pursuing in this study, has landed here and said, this is the core of Romans. The rest of the book will fall out of this backpack of verses 16 and 17. Even the application portions will find themselves in connection to the righteousness of God. So I don't apologize for taking an entire sermon on 16. I don't apologize for taking a message on verse 17 today. It's too important to have that big idea clear and I'll be going back to these two verses probably for the rest of this exposition. Because it's a, it's a wonderful guidepost to remind us, where okay, where are we? As we get to chapter 4, and he's talking about Abraham. How does this relate to the righteousness of God? As we come to the declaration of our justification by faith in Jesus Christ in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. How does this connect to the righteousness of God? Chapter 8, 9, 10, all these different chapters. How does this relate to the righteousness of God? It is the decoder pin or the um, guidepost that you will use for the rest of this study. It's the big idea. And so this phrase, the righteousness of God, all of Paul's argumentation will flow from this one very potent verse. But let me go back to 16 for a minute. If you notice chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There were numerous potential reasons I gave last week why the Apostle Paul or why the early church or why you and I could potentially be ashamed of the gospel. Here's just a, a few of them. The fallen nature of natural man is by nature opposed to the gospel. By nature. We're also told in 1 Corinthians that the gospel is foolishness to the lost. This gospel that you and I love, we celebrate. We, we hear it preached. We hear it in songs. We read it in the text. We, 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 we pray it out. It's so central to who we are, this message of the gospel. This is seen as lunacy from this world. Pure foolishness. A crucified God in the flesh. I've heard numerous blasphemers make reference to the fairy tale of Christianity. Another reason might be the fear of man's rejection. You're just scared. You get laughed at. Say you're a young person and you're in college and there you are and there's the professor ridiculing the old dusty beliefs of Christianity. You take a stand, the whole class turns around and just mocks you something fierce. 
That's powerful. That's powerful. Peer pressure never goes away. It's always there. And that fear of man's rejection could leave you ashamed of the gospel, or at least appear ashamed of the gospel. And lastly, that I shared, this is a couple weeks ago, the fear of the world's persecution. Now, this is a little different than rejection. The first one is more social. This one is, is actually physical harm. Now, in our country, you may go, Dan, that doesn't really apply as much right now. Well, let me just say it may. Secondly, I would say we have brothers and sisters all over this planet who are being persecuted right now physically, who are dying right now. So let it, let it sit, beloved, right now. All you have to do is just, just deny this Jesus right now. That's all you got to do. No, I won't do that, dead. That's not, a, that's not a church history thing. That's a now thing. Let us be careful in our bubble wrap America that we don't miss that. We don't, we don't think that that doesn't happen. That's happening now where people are dying for Jesus Christ. And in the face of all those uh, potentials, Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed in the least. But Paul, they may beat you. Let them. They may kill you. Then to die is gain. They may make fun of you. They may persecute you in all kinds of ways. They may malign you and tear down your name. Then let it be. Let it be. I'm not ashamed in the least of this glorious message. And that's where you ask the question, how are you so confident in this? Paul's not ashamed of this good news because Paul is utterly convinced of the power of God in this message. Completely. And if you were to ask, Dan, what do you mean, how do you know he's so confident? Have you seen the track record? You've seen what he's endured for this message. People don't do that unless they're thoroughly convinced. That doesn't prove it to be true so much. It just proves that he believes it to his core. Paul knows this by Scripture and by his own experience. Paul's readers also have experienced the saving power of this message. Paul knew the God behind the message. Remember, as Jesus approached him on the road to Damascus and confronted him, Paul experienced the saving power of God and that glorious message. Remember, he was on his way to go persecute the church. This man was, was completely opposed to this message. He hated this message. He hated the God who preaches and gave this message. He hates that. You go, well, how do you know? Have you seen his track record prior to salvation? How, how strongly he persecuted. The scripture says he was breathing threats. He was ravaging the church. This is the language used of this missionary before he came to Christ. And the power of the gospel broke into his life. Paul knew the God behind the powerful message. He was fully confident in the magnificent power of God through the message of salvation. And so when he says, I am not ashamed, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for, for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also 
to the Greek. Now, verse 17. For in it, in other words, he's continuing this conversation, he's continuing his point, his argument here. For in it, the it being the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. The key theme of this letter is found in this phrase. This phrase, um, the just shall live by faith, you'll see that used in Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. This passage is one that is, is a... Uh, uh, kind of a touchstone as it tracks through your Bible from Habakkuk through the New Testament of justification by faith alone. Now, here's the thing is who defines that which is good? Who defines that which is good? What is meant by this pregnant phrase, the righteousness of God? We have to ask the question before we move further in our understanding of the gospel and of scripture and of anything to ask the question, by whose standard? Who says, who says that? Who makes that to be? Is it me? Is it Dan Mason who decides that which is good? Well, you're in trouble if that be the case. And yet, beloved, in our world, we hand it off to so many different things. Society decides that which is good, so much so that people argue in the goodness of abortion because so many want to argue for it. Really? Who decides what's good? Well, the majority said it. I don't care. That doesn't make it good. Well, it makes sense to me. That doesn't make it good. See, that's the tough part, right? Because we can look at the world and go, that's ridiculous. This makes more sense to me, so I think this is what's good. Well, you're not the judge. You don't decide that. And I, I've been, it's kind of like digging, right? You, you start digging and you go, man, this, this, this ground's hard. And you dig a little bit more. This ground's pretty hard. And you keep digging a little bit more. And the more you dig, the more you go, I can't believe what's in here. That's, that's what's happening with the scripture. And I'll just be... Uh, uh, just transparent with you, that's what's happening in the book of Romans for me. That's why we're going slow, because the more I dig, the more I come away going, this is incredible. But I've been pressed on this point of what is good? Who says what is good? Well, this might surprise you, but it's God. God's the one who says what is good. And it's not good because God studied to figure out what is good. God is good. He is the source. It's not outside of God. God is good. What he says is good is good. Even if you, in your fallen brain, are seeking to understand, you go, God, that doesn't seem to be good. You're wrong. He's right. When the scripture says that all things were created for his glory, by nature we go, that seems a little off to me. That's your problem. That's my problem. That's what he says. I bow to him. I bow to God. What God says, I want. And so when God says, this is good, this is not good, 
my answer. Then this is good and this is not good. I want to know what good is according to him, not what this world says. I don't care what the polls said. I want to know what God said. So who defines that which is good? The living God. What is meant by this pregnant phrase, the righteousness of God? There's a couple different things, and commentators, I was counting them. There's probably about 10 different commentaries I was looking at this week, and they're like dear friends of mine. And what's frustrating is when all 10 of my friends are differing with one another. Does this make reference to the righteous character of God, a characteristic of God? Does this make reference to the righteous standing of man before God? What is this phrase referring to? What's the reference here to this phrase, the righteousness of God? Well, I'm convinced both are revealed in the gospel. I believe God's righteous character is revealed in the gospel, and I also believe the means by which we are justified before that God is revealed in the gospel. Let me take you to a couple passages, okay? Go to Romans chapter 10, verse 1. And you're going to see the, the, another usage of this same phrase from verse 17 in chapter 10. Um, I'm going to read verses 1 to 4. Hearing the apostle's heart for his Jewish brethren to know Christ. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now listen to what he says here. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now notice this. If you were to ask the Jews in this day, at this time with with Paul, if you were to ask them, do you believe God is righteous? They would say, of course. And they would have the Old Testament scriptures to support their argument for the righteousness of God. So I don't believe this is a reference to the righteous character of God necessarily. But if you notice in the text, you've you got to do a little bit of Bible study and work here, but eventually you'll come to the terms with the righteousness of God is a phrase that is pointing us towards how someone is righteous before God. A means of righteousness provided by God that satisfies God. That's why here, what is um, put up against the righteousness of God? Their own righteousness. Did you notice that in the text? It says they seek to establish their own. Their own what? Their own righteousness. What is that in competition to? The righteousness of God. And then verse 4 is like the cherry that goes on top of the Sunday, just to make it crystal clear to you and I, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm tracking on this, on this, same, this same idea. <coughs> Verse 30. 
but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Now notice, you are in Christ Jesus, who, so this is in reference to Christ, became to us what? Wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus became our righteousness. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Last text in this, in this piece, but I want you to see these in your Bibles with your eyes for what's being said. Philippians 3.9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Just like Paul's refers to about the Jews in Romans 10 that we just saw. Which is from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God upon faith. The righteousness. This righteousness is that which is found in Jesus Christ by faith. Now, I need to read this because my memory is not that great, all right? The righteousness of God, quote-unquote, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ provided by His sacrifice that is only accredited to those who put their faith in the work of Jesus Christ. This is the only righteousness approved by God. The sovereign of the universe only accepts the righteousness of his son. There is no other righteousness that God accepts. There is no other gospel that contains this message. Paul, why are you so confident? Why, why are you not ashamed of this? Because there's one righteousness on this universe. It's not that I am in competition with Jesus. That Jesus, his perfect righteousness uh, has been given as a substitute. And then my righteousness helps him out. There is no competitive righteousness, beloved. It's Christ's righteousness. God is not saying, I hope Dan will do his best, slash, and have the righteousness of my son. No, the Father says, you must be in the son. You're not in the son. You have no salvation. You have no righteousness. There's no righteousness apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's in him and in him alone. That's not some preacher talk, beloved. That's not Dan. Remove Dan. God's word says that. If you believe that this is God's word, and you believe God has spoken in this text, you must come to terms with this. And I pray you already have, and I'm preaching to the choir, but you must come to terms with this. There is no other righteousness. God says, I will accept you on the merit of Jesus, or I won't accept you. And you wonder, right? You go, man, how? 
the martyrs who've, who've given their, their heads, who've given their lives, have been burned at the stake. Why? Because they were so confident this is where the truth lies. And let every man be a liar. Just let the world say whatever they want. I don't care. This is the truth. And what's so fantastic is that this is God's magnificent gift to us. His doing for us. Now, I I want you to forgive me for this. I'm going to read a quote, and it has some really old Elizabethan English. So bear with me. But the truth here is too sweet. John Bunyan says this. One day as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest yet all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought withal, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, there I say, as my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could, say, could not say of me, He wants my righteousness, for that was just before Him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart and my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from all my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away, so that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. What's Bunyan saying? Bunyan is saying, my righteous standing before God is Christ. God's not looking to see if I'm going to be righteous this morning. He stands at the right hand of the Father, or sits at the right hand of the Father, as my righteousness. This is why in 1 John, John says, we have an intercessor. We have someone who's interceding on our behalf. Please notice at verse 17, I know we've been all over the place, but go back to Romans 1.17. For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. This word is extremely important and it's pretty cool. Revealed, uncovered, to be opened up for one to see. Well, what's needed for that to take place? somebody to allow you to see. If I'm going to reveal something to you, you don't reveal it to yourself. I reveal it to you. God has decided by His grace to let this glorious truth be known. He's revealed this. He's declared this. This is all over the place. Missionaries traveling untold amounts of miles and hours and sickness heralding this message. 
This glorious message of Jesus Christ is revealed. God did this. God, God's the one who has done this. This righteousness of God is only made known by sovereign revelation. Almighty God has graciously decided to let this salvation be known to humanity. God has ordained this plan of redemption. God has sent forth His Son as a substitute. God has made known to this world this glorious saving message. This was all done by His good pleasure. No outside coercion. Nobody coerced God into this. This is what's so fascinating, right? The, the, I, mean, I don't mean this in any way um, disrespectful, but the insanity of the gospel, from my standpoint, is that God did this out of his pure free choice. I know me. I, I don't want me if I'm him. God, out of his pure, free choice, sent forth his son to be pierced to a tree. See, this is what's so cool theologically and, and biblically. You can't go past God as far as why. When you ask that question, yeah, but, but why? But why? We could say, well, he loved us. Well, yeah, okay, okay, I, I believe that. But why? Typically, when you tell somebody I love you, their, their response at times will be, What do you love? What's lovable? Well, don't ask that question to God because it's not that great. It's in himself. He did not pour out his love on me because I was so worthy. So unworthy. And you have to at some point, beloved, all of us with open Bibles and with hearts open before the Lord have to bow at that reality This is because God says he wants it to be. There's no coercion pushing God to this. There's nothing grand in us that would make him want us. It's found in him, in his nature. And to me, I I just have to stop and bow because I don't get it. That's where we use the word awesome far too glibly. That reality is awesome. I'm left in awe that the sovereignty of the universe has so decided to let this be known, to reveal this glorious saving message. And per the norm, the Apostle Paul quotes, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. If you haven't read Habakkuk or done a study in Habakkuk or have any connection with Habakkuk, um, number one, it's not pronounced Habakkuk. Number two, <coughs> that, that book is a very fascinating book because God, what he's doing is he's bringing a, a bad, quote-unquote, pagan nation coming in to discipline his people. And Habakkuk is scratching his head going, God, I do not get what you're up to. And God's response is, if you were told, you wouldn't believe what I'm up to. And his response to God and his waiting back to hear from God goes up on his watchtower and, okay, then I want to hear from the Lord, I want to hear from the Lord. That's the context where this passage is thundered, that the just will live by faith. Because what's the big question in Habakkuk? How come bad people are doing stuff to good people? Question? Who are the good people? The just shall live 
by faith. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes that text in a, in a, perfect, in a perfect paralleling context and sets it here. But the, the righteous, or the just, will live by faith. Now, as he made reference to, this is revealed from faith to faith, a very tough text, lots of disagreement. I don't know if I had two commentaries agree on what from faith to faith meant. Some folks said this is in reference from the Jewish faith to the Christian faith. Some folks said this is in reference to our growing in faith. So we're, we're weak in faith and then we're stronger in faith. Some said this is the faith of different generations from faith to faith. I don't have a, a very perfect answer what I think it is because it is difficult. To me, I think it makes sense because of what the quotation from Habakkuk here is in reference to from saving faith to the life of faith. And so consistently throughout this life of saving faith, it begins there moving forward in faith, from faith to faith to faith. Or the NIV, I believe, in, even translated it from start to finish or something along those lines. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, if you disagree strongly, let Dennis know after the service. So, <clears throat> as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. First and foremost, we need to recognize that Paul's quote of Habakkuk makes it clear that justification is by faith and is by faith alone. Also, please don't miss this, Paul's not bringing a brand new idea. When Paul says the just shall live by faith, there may be some people who'd raise their hand in his day, and the question they have is, but what about obedience to the law? I thought that's how we got just before God. And Paul would, and he will, throughout the book of Romans, make a crystal clear argument, there has never been justification apart from faith. There has never been justification by the works of the law. Why do you think he consistently goes back to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament, and particularly in Galatians and in Romans, he goes back to Abraham, the father of the nation, to show even that man was never justified by works. That man was justified by faith. And so to bring out this text from Habakkuk and remind them of the truth of the Old Testament scriptures, that has always been true, is true, and beloved, can I remind you this morning, is true for you, the righteous are righteous by faith. We are just by faith. We're justified by faith in our salvation, but we continue to live by faith as believers. This is why Paul says that we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. Keeping in step with the Holy Spirit as we, as we move forward. Though we don't see Him, we love Him. And so the just person is just... By faith, saving faith. No one has ever been declared just before God apart from faith. It is impossible. Can I remind you of this verse? And you probably know it. You probably have it to memory. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tells us it is impossible to please God apart from faith. What, what is the declaration there? That's a declaration of all of redemptive history. Nobody has ever been pleasing to God by their works. We are pleasing to God in the righteousness of Christ. So you scratch your head and you go, okay, Paul, why are you so confident? 
Because Paul knows deep in his soul, and every believer, I hope, should know this, there is but one righteousness for this universe. All man-made religion is a big pile of loss. All of my works, apart from the work of Christ, even as a believer, is loss. Because what makes my works good works? What makes those good works? That I'm in Christ. It is the glorious salvation of Jesus. It's his righteousness. I do not go to bed scared in case I didn't wake up tomorrow. I'm seated in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And all of my good works that flow out of the Christian life or flow through the Christian life flow from that saving faith, that glorious, glorious righteousness. So before we come to the table, Lord's table, somebody may say this. Okay, Dan, I get it. I get it. You, you, um, you've been talking about the righteousness of, of Jesus Christ and all of these things that can at times come off as dusty and academic. Where does this hit me? Where, can, put this in the concrete. Tomorrow's Monday. We're going to go into our week. We're going to talk to lots of people. Dan, I understand that what you're saying here, but I need you to make a connection for me. Or, as every good uh, preaching professor has said, you've got to at some point ask, so what? Well, let me put it in the concrete for you. Say after Sunday school and a time of visiting, we leave. And not your fault in the least. A truck driver happens to not be paying attention in that moment. And within a second, within an instant, your life's over. It's done. All your plans for next week, hmm. Is your next cognizant moment Christ? Or is it not? This coming spring will mark eight years. Uh, Amber and I have been working and serving with the sheriff's office as, as chaplains. I can't count how many times I've gone to a car crash on 101 where two people with all kinds of plans, all kinds of purposes, were going to cross. One of them came to the other. And they smacked, and both gone within an instant. And the question is, did they die in Christ's righteousness or in their own righteousness? Beloved, you want that to go in the concrete. There it is. If in Christ's righteousness, joy everlasting for all eternity, if in your own righteousness, eternal torment, unceasing, forever. The only righteousness that is accepted by God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Is He your hope? Is He your substitute? Are you resting in Him? Do you trust in Him? 
Or are you still trying to do it by yourself, still trying to make it, and I'm not a bad person, and all those little cliches we use to just stuff it down so we don't have to pay attention to it. At some point, beloved, this life's over. And to you, believer, confident, clear in your mind and heart, you know who you are in Christ. I pray that God would grant us a fresh new appreciation for this salvation in Jesus. May this kind of sermon never become old hat and dusty. And I don't mean in reference to Dan. I mean in reference to the truth behind this message. May we each day grow deeper and stronger in our sense of our need for the righteousness of Jesus. If we don't have his righteousness, we don't have righteousness. I believe that that is the guidepost for the rest of however long this message, this series is going to take. We will go back to that over and over and over and over again. So before we come to the Lord's table, um, in light of what I've just shared, we're going to take some elements. We're going to drink some juice, and we're going to chew on some, some of the finest bread ever handcrafted. And um, this isn't a, a superstition. This isn't anything weird like that. What this is, is this is a symbol expressing and reminding us of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. The, the bread is his body, the, the juice is in reference to the blood that was spilt in this new covenant in Christ. Christians do this not because it's tradition. Jesus commanded it. Our head, our leader, our senior pastor, Jesus Christ, commanded we do this. And so we seek to do that in obedience to him in a time of remembrance. And there's a clear warning in the word of God to all those who may come and drink this in an unworthy manner. If you know in your heart of hearts you're playing games this morning, or maybe not even playing games, but just you're really struggling, and you know, I'm not a Christian. I do not have saving faith. Two things. Please abstain from that. Secondly, please do not leave today. I want you to ask some questions. Poke at us. Ask, let's, let's talk. I'll meet you for coffee later in the week. We'll, we'll make it work. Whatever you want to do. But if, you're, if you feel that thumping in your chest this morning and you, you're just struggling, you know you're not in Christ, don't stuff it down. Don't just hold it down underneath. Just let it, let it bubble to the surface. You need Christ. You have no righteousness this morning if you don't have it. So let me, let me pray, and we'll come to, come to the Lord's table. Our Father God, Lord, where would we be? Where would we be this morning in our location? Where would we be in our salvation? Where were we, would we?